Welcome back to History of Blurbs, undoubtedly your favorite relatively short podcast about historical figures and events. I'm your host, writer, researcher, one-woman operation, etc., Katie Smith. Had an unplanned extended break, but we're back, so let's jump right into the story. Isabella was born enslaved in New York in 1797 or so. She was sold away from her parents at age nine, alongside a flock of sheep, for a hundred dollars. At this point, she spoke only Dutch, but eventually came to pride herself on how well she spoke English. Two years later, she was sold again to a tavern keeper, and then, eighteen months later, to a man I will only be referring to as this asshole. This asshole sexually assaulted her repeatedly and impregnated her at least once. Around age 17 or 18, she met and fell in love with Robert, who was enslaved at a neighboring farm. Robert's owner didn't approve of people he enslaved having relationships with people enslaved by others. Because if children resulted from the union, he wanted to own them too. So, he forbade Robert from seeing Isabella, and when he caught him sneaking over one day, beat him within an inch of his life. Robert and Isabella never saw each other again. Isabella later married an older enslaved man named Thomas and had three children with him, Peter, Elizabeth, and Sophia. She had previously given birth to James, who died in childhood, and Diana, who was a result of rape by this asshole. The state of New York passed a law in 1799 when Isabella was about two years old, beginning a gradual abolition of slavery. The law included that children born to enslaved mothers after July 4th of that year would have to provide free services to their mothers and slavers until they reached age 25 if female and 28 if male. But this law only covered those born after 1799, so there had to be something additional to free those born before 1799. This didn't come for another 18 years, and the emancipation date was set for another 10 years after that. So, back to Isabella. This asshole promised to grant her freedom a year before state emancipation if she would do well and be faithful. But when the time came, he claimed a previous hand injury had made her less productive, so she hadn't upheld her end of the bargain. So, Isabella spun about a hundred pounds of wool, which she thought made them even, then took her infant daughter and walked away. She later said, I did not run off, for I thought that wicked, but I walked off, believing that to be all right. She landed with an abolitionist family nearby, who paid this asshole $20 when he came knocking, to buy her services for the remainder of the time until emancipation. Isabella was free. Unfortunately, she left three of her children behind because of the stupid law that enslaved them until well into their 20s. And then she learned that her five-year-old son, Peter, had been sold to a man in Alabama. She knew he would spend his life enslaved if he had to stay there. She was very religious and was involved in several denominations throughout her life, so she turned to her Quaker friends for help. You may or may not remember, but Quakers were one of the first denominations to denounce slavery. With their monetary donations, she was able to wage a court battle to recover her son, and... She won, becoming the first black woman to win a case against a white man. 
I looked for information on exactly how this happened and still don't fully understand how she won in a system stacked against her, but just recently some of the court documents for this case were uncovered. They include her deposition, the writ of habeas corpus, the response from the man who sold Peter out of New York, and the court order freeing Peter. Peter had been horrifically abused in Alabama and had so many scars on his body that his mother said he looked like her fingers when she held them straight out. There seems to have been a tragic end to Peter's life in young adulthood. We don't know exactly what happened, but he took a job on a whaling ship called the Zone of Nantucket, and in two years his mother only received three letters from him. Though in his third letter, he claimed that he had sent five and had never received any letters from her. When the ship returned to port, he was not on board and was never heard from again. But back to our main story. After rescuing Peter, Isabella moved with her two youngest children to New York City, where she began working for a zealous missionary. In 1843, she declared that the Spirit had called upon her to preach the truth, and this is when she took the name you probably know her by. Sojourner Truth. She started traveling and spent the rest of her life speaking, preaching, singing, debating, using the Bible to preach against slavery and for women's rights. This was all based on parts of the Bible she had heard. She had never learned to read or write. In fact, she even dictated her autobiography, the sales of which then supported her. You can still find this book if you want to read it. It's called Narrative of Sojourner Truth. In 1851, she gave a lecture at a women's rights conference in Ohio. Accounts from people who were present that day say that it was a stirring speech and well-received, but 12 years later, it became known as the Ain't I a Woman speech. The speech had initially been published by Reverend Marius Robinson, who was in attendance when it was given and was also friends with Sojourner Truth. He published it about a month or so after it was given. Twelve years later, Francis Gage published a version that was very different. I've read both, and there are a couple of phrases in Gage's version that align with what Robinson published, but it was heavily editorialized, containing an account of how truth was initially received that day that did not align with reports from the same day. This version contained the rhetorical question, Ain't I a Woman, several times. It does not appear at all in Robinson's version. Additionally, Gage wrote his version with the stereotypical southern slave dialect. But, as you may recall, Sojourner Truth was from New York, and her first language was Dutch. She spoke English with a Dutch accent. It reads like he took a grain of the truth and twisted it to fit a narrative. I've been calling it the Fox News version of her speech. This was, of course, the version most widely circulated. That said, it's important to note that there's not a single undisputed version of her speech available. She herself couldn't have proofread either one, and though she was friends with Robinson and collaborated with him on the transcription, she didn't dictate the speech to him. Robinson's version was also published in the Anti-Slavery Bugle, so he could have made adjustments for an audience more concerned with the rights of African Americans than with women's rights, despite the speech taking place at a women's rights conference. Regardless of what's most accurate, the speech is remembered today, and Sojourner Truth has been memorialized repeatedly for this and her other contributions to abolition, temperance, and civil and women's rights.
including her unsuccessful efforts near the end of her life to secure land grants for formerly enslaved people. She died at home in Michigan on November 26, 1883. In 2009, she became the first African-American woman to have a statue in the U.S. Capitol building. There's a bust of her in Emancipation Hall. There are many statues, monuments, and memorials remembering her, but my two favorite honorariums are the asteroid that was named after her in 2014 and the Google Doodle celebrating her that was shown on February 1st, 2019 in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., Ireland, Switzerland, Israel, and Germany. That's all for today. I'll be back next week with a new story. See you soon. Bye.